death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. My name's Graham Bullock. I'm 68 years old. I was born in England in, well, 1954. And then uh, we moved out here with a family in 1991. I'm Helen Bullock. I am uh, 67 years old. I was born in England, in uh, Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire. Um, I married Graham in 1975. And we had four children and we then decided we'd emigrate and we've been here, like Graham says, since 1991. I've had various jobs and then I went into nursing later in life. I took an aged care course and then managed to get a scholarship through the government to do my own nursing. And then I worked at Royal Perth up until I was 62. Fortunately, I decided after a conversation with Helen, to retire just after 60. And I say fortunately because by the time I was 65, and that was when I was struck down with MND, or that was when I was first diagnosed. And then since then, it's just been life in a wheelchair with Helen, my carer, my only carer. So Helen, when Graham got the MND, motor neurone disease, diagnosis, what did that feel like for you with your nursing background, knowing what that might mean? I just couldn't believe it at first. It was just devastating. Um, To be honest, even though I knew what motor neurons was, I didn't know the complexities of it. Um, We were told originally... Uh, by the neurologist who diagnosed Graham, that it would be two to three years' life. And that was, you know, God, what do we do? You know, what do we do from here? And um, it was it was frightening, wasn't it? You know. Well, it was a bit of a shock, yeah, but we, we realised there was something seriously wrong. The original examination lasted for well over, well, about an hour, didn't yes. he? Yeah. yeah, and this doctor stripped me right down to the underpants and he just... You know, he checked every part of my body and stared into my eyes, you know, for a, for a long time. So the MRI was uh, of the, the, the head, the brain, the full torso, and like it's all down to the spine. Um, and then, obviously, then we had to go back and it was 100%. And I think it was at the end of May then, wasn't it? It That's was May the 31st, yeah. It was a Friday afternoon. It was a beautiful day. And we were on our way to a rugby game, actually, that night. And when we found out, Helen was quite devastated. I was shocked, obviously. We, Helen wanted to go home. I said, no, you know, we'll carry on planning to do what we were going to do. We didn't, or we decided 
not to tell anybody for the time being. I don't know why. I don't know why we decided that. I think because we wanted to tell the children. Well, we were always going we to, tell the, to children tell the children first. first. Yeah, whatever happens. I think we just needed to um, come to terms with it ourselves. At as first, much as anything else, we? probably, yeah. But yeah. You, I noticed his walking was a bit different, his gait. And then you had a little bit of a... So we thought, well, what's this? It was started to get a little bit worse. You were tripping and getting quite tired as well after you've That's been right, walking. Yeah. For people who may not know what and how the disease progresses from your nursing background, just, just give us the bare bones of what happens when uh, somebody can drive, has MND. Um, well, it basically is your actual neuron, which actually, for some reason, it, it, it died. It, it's, it doesn't send like the electric charge to the muscle to work. So these are neurons in the brain? Yes, they're actually, there's two, there's like an upper one and then there's the one which go, more or less goes into the spinal cord. There's like a frontal one and the lower one and they, it is like your neuron, somehow they die, they stop charging to the muscle and then eventually the muscle just really wastes away. And so that, that causes the leg muscles that they like get like um, just very heavy and dead and you can't move them. And that's obviously Graham started in the toe and it seems as if it's moved up. And then now it's starting in the arms and your fingers and up to your shoulders a little bit, isn't it? And well, it's difficult to lift my arms, yeah. But yeah. there are different kinds. Yours was diagnosed as... Um, PMA. Yeah, primary muscular atrophy, which we have been led to believe that this is a slower form. Uh, we weren't quite sure because you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know how quick it's going to happen. I mean, like Graham said, we've, we've reached now almost three years and even though the first year was pretty easy going and the second wasn't too bad, it gets harder since about yeah. last April you could, you haven't been able to walk uh, but you were able to perhaps stand just a tiny bit but now it's just got that now you I have to either use a hoist or a slide board because you can't can't move at all only like that you know just uh, from side to side yeah I started losing the use of my legs first of all and now I'm having problems with my hands and arms. So although I did accept it straight away and I realised, you know, couldn't possibly be anything else, when I saw other people with it, I thought, maybe they're wrong. But, well, it turns out <laughs> it was right. And Helen, what about you? How, how did you get yourself to that point where there is no coming back from this? We felt like we'd just been, just handed this you know, death sentence. Yeah, well, I was. I think I was just frightened how quick it was going to all happen. And Which it can do in some cases. It can. And so then I just thought, just tried to thought, well, we'll just cope with what's happening and try and live as much as we can normally and then just manage each stage 
when it happens. And that's what I've tried to do when we've both tried to do, really, haven't we? Yes. I mean, sometimes it's hard. Some, some days things don't work. But we just find other ways around it to cope with it. And, and that's what we've had to do. You know, it's not something that we can just give it, give them back. It, we've just had to get on with it. And I think that's what's um, right from the start, even before seeing the second um, neurologist, we co contacted the Motor Neurons Association and they sent a support worker out and she talked to us. And then at least it was the support and the yeah. to know somebody who was at least behind you who knew what was going on. How important was it that Helen picked up that phone and spoke to the support group that allowed you to to at least, you know, get some perspective about where where you yes. might be heading? Well, that's right, yeah. It was it was a big relief, you know. It was a weight off the shoulders, if you like, knowing that you were in touch with somebody else or a group of people who were familiar with what's going on and what's going to happen to you. That wasn't a, you know, that was, it was good to know that. And then, of course, we started going to these functions and then we were meeting all these other people with it. And that was, like I said, that, that was when I realised that, you know, what, could possibly happen to me in a very short space of time. I'm going to take you back to last year, which is when I met you both, um, and WA's decision to legalise voluntary assisted dying. And you came across very strongly, Graham, when people were debating this, uh, the pros and cons of, of having such uh, a choice. Sure. And um, I just just want to talk a little bit about that and what your opinion is of legalising assisted death. I was all for it at the time, and I'm still even more all for it, all for it now. More so now, because reading of other people's issues, not, not particularly in Australia, but in... England, for example, you know, every day I'm reading, and it's actually on Facebook, I'm not ashamed to say, you know, there, there's quite a few support groups on Facebook, and on some of them, people are just suffering needlessly in other parts of the world, and like I say, in England in particular, where they don't have this, this choice. And what, they're, what, the, what the actual victims or patients, whatever you want to call them, what they are going through and what their carers are going through. It's just horrible. And it gets to the point where, you know, you, you have to walk away from it sometimes because it's that distressing. So that's why, really, I'm all for it. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, six months, 12 months, whenever, that I will have a choice. Because this, it's not just the patient who suffers, it's the family as well. It's it's a dreadful it's a dreadful situation to be in, and to have that choice is really it's heartwarming if you like you know knowing knowing that you you don't have to suffer. And having said that, it's not just for MND; it's for cancer patients as well. People just should not be allowed to suffer like they do, and like we've made them to. I actually used to work on the chemotherapy ward, and. 
uh, you know, haematology and everything. And yes, and to be honest, I, I do feel strongly about, I, I feel strongly about euthanasia and I do feel people should have the choice. Um, especially, you know, when they have got a terminal illness or if they've got an illness that can be, um, you know, resolved, but they're in an awful lot of pain or they can't do anything about it. I, you know, and I think when they brought the voluntary assisted dying, there are this, um, there's things in place and you can be interviewed by a doctor to make sure that it, the decision is right. You're not just wanting to commit suicide or take your own life, but there is a good reason. I mean, if your life gets to the point where yeah, there's no pleasure in it and you, you're not enjoying your life, you're full of pain or you can't move. And, and this is one of the I am. It does concern me for Graham. At the moment, we do have bad things, but we do have still have a lot of good things happening. But I'd hate hate it to be that it's all bad for him. So um, even though, I, you know, to me, I would, I don't want to lose Graham, but I know it's inevitable. It's going to happen. I do think there is a place for it. I don't think everybody should go for it. Obviously, but I think if people are suffering, yes. I think the choice should be there. We were both actually brought up as Roman Catholics, well, strong still Roman that. Catholics. And if there's one thing you learn being a Roman Catholic, it's, you know, that one day you're going to die. And they more or less teach you from the day yeah. you start school, you know, that they, they actually start preparing yourself for it. So the, probably the only place it is spoken about is in the church. And it does need to be brought out into society more. And it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't hurt people. Like Ellen says, it's something that's going to happen to all of us. And as long as you're prepared for it, I mean, it's, it's good being in a position where, like myself, you know, I know it's, it's round the corner or it's just up the road a bit. That makes it easier because you get, you you enjoy you enjoy everything that's available to you and you make the most of it and with a family and that it's although we were, we were really we're a close family you know we've got four children and they've all got children and we were always we were always pretty close but since this has happened we've become even closer. even closer if you can if you can imagine that yeah. which is you know a good thing did you feel kind of like a responsibility, both of you, to kind of protect the kids and the grandkids from the reality of the situation? How, how, how did um, you work that all of that out? Well, we said we weren't going to tell anybody. We were, I was diagnosed on the Friday and we said we weren't going to, we just, let's, let's just sit back and think about yeah. it and see how we approach it. But by the Sunday morning... Two days later, we thought, oh, gosh, you know, we, we better we better tell them. We better right. let them know. But regarding the grandchildren, we we didn't say anything to them. And I think the parents eventually told them over time, you know, because they range in age from, 
uh, 30 down to, well, we've got one now that's five months old. Helen, what's it been like for you to be Graham's partner at his side, listen to that diagnosis, and then becoming overnight, I suppose, his primary carer? Well, the first 12 months wasn't too, wasn't so bad. And um, I kept thinking, when, when are things going to change? And it, it's just gone gradually. And I'd said I was more than happy just to, to try and manage and cope and look after him at home. And, and I still stick by that, even though it's getting harder now. I don't want Graham to go in the home as, as, as long as I'm physically able and we can get help coming in. We'll, you know, try and keep him at home. Um, it's only until really this last couple of months I've started to find things are getting really quite heavy and, um, and a little bit more difficult with the showering and personal care. So we've actually started to um, get some carers in only twice a week just to give me a break. And even just that has been quite a bit of a relief. And it is hard and I get tired and um, we, well, we just want you to be as comfortable as possible. Graham, um, how do you cope with that? With Helen looking after me, or mm-hmm. <laughs> it's be careful what you say. Yeah, no, no. Look, Helen, she she does a great job. Oh. There's no two ways about it. But I do feel that you know it would be nice if we did have more help. We don't. To be honest, we just don't have enough help at the moment. Although we're coping all right, I look. I, sp- I spend a lot of time in the chair and that, which I probably would do anyway. But it would it would be nice if Helen, if she could have a weekend off, for example, or even just a couple of days off. I mean, all she gets now is two hours a fortnight, isn't she? <laughs> which is- yeah, it's laughable, isn't it? Yeah, she gets two hours a fortnight off when somebody comes in and sits with me. Other than that, she can uh, she goes for a swim on her own in the morning, or she'll she'll go out for a walk and do some exercises. So she'll have time to clear ahead and you know just put me on the back burner for the time being, and just have some time to herself. But I. I do feel that you know it's probably getting to the point now where we do need a little bit more assistance. And in terms of your relationship, are you stronger now? Are you well? Oh, I think I think we are. Aren't we? Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we've been together forty-seven years, so I think we've been very lucky. We've always had a really good relationship. We've always felt a lot of love haven't we and oh, the definitely. children have all been brought and the love's matured in. over the yeah, years hasn't it I think sometimes it's it's a very hard thing because Graham's needs are I've had to take over all his personal needs and it's a good job that we are close um, because it's it's all his dignity taken away and I think probably because I have done nursing, whether I I could mm. accept that, but it was hard for Graham to accept, you know, to, to attend to some of his personal things because he can't do it himself. And where it's been a lot for you to swallow, hasn't it? Where, for me, I could accept it and 
I don't think anything or my love or my relationship with Graham, it, it hasn't destroyed any of that. Um, I think mentally sometimes I've, I've had to start finding ways to cope. At the moment, you found us on a good month because March, it was, I was going through quite, everything was moving and I was in a bad space then. <laughs> Graham, do you feel that there is a clock that's ticking? <laughs> Look, to be honest, it's ticking, but it's ticking very slowly. I just, at the moment, I feel like I, I could go on like this for many more years to come. If I, if I was going to be honest with myself, I really wouldn't want to be going on like this for years and years to come. But it does feel like it's, it's progressing slowly, but not to the point where I'm that concerned about it. Graham's breathing is quite good, um, but they start with, you know, like making secretion, like thick secretions and can't swallow. And I'm, you know, I do watch out for things like that. So anytime the food, something goes the wrong way, I'm like, oh no, I just don't want Graham to suffer. <laughs> I, you know, I do love eating. There's no two ways about it. And Ellen's a demon in the kitchen, especially with Italian food. Now, if it comes to the point where I've got to have a peg inserted in my stomach and, and I've got to have all my food mushed up and that, and, you know, I'm, it's not something I'm looking forward to. And it, to be honest, it's not something I think I'd really want to put up with. And if I had to have a breathing tube put in there, look, I, I'm, I'm almost, well, I'm, just about 68 years old, and I, yeah, look, if, if the end comes soon, then the end comes soon. There's no two ways about it. These support groups I was telling you about earlier, you read on there about people 29, 30, 35. Yeah, that's awful. And that's, that's just dreadful, you know. I've had I've had my shot and I've had a good you know we've 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 had a great life and okay, so it's my turn. Don't feed me through a tube and don't tell me to breathe. I was actually thinking last year when we'd been to that uh, ABC forum, you'd got these goals in place, and um, we got um, our youngest son. They were expecting another baby. She, she was born in November. November yeah. So we'd got a new baby on the way. You wanted to see your granddaughter. We one of our the eldest grandson. He was eighteen in January. In January, you got that. Get wanted to Christmas. have a beer with him. You've got all these girls, and this year you've not said anything at all. You just. Just, I don't know when you're just glad to wake up each day. <laughs> I'm not no, quite sure I haven't asked you. But yeah. you've not actually made any goals, have you? you? Oh, you have. Because you reached 68 this week and that was what your father was, wasn't he? When he passed oh, no, away. my Yeah, it was almost 68 when he passed away, yeah. So I'm past his age. But I'll just set different goals now. I'll, you know, I'm just looking forward to maybe with Willow just... You know, having to sit on my knee and 
that's our youngest granddaughter, and perhaps get to see Ravi play football, play soccer, yeah. because he's going to be playing he's going soccer. To be playing. Yeah, so it's just like life anyway, isn't it? You just set yourself, you reach you reach a goal and then you, you set yourself another one. But that's how it's been all our lives. You know, we've always been surrounded by family and it's always it's always about eating, basically, <laughs> isn't it? You know, I think that's, yeah, that's the Italian, that's the Italian is, in us. Yeah. Graham's yeah. mum was Italian. We, we just love eating and talking and occasional drinking. It could be a lot worse, Rita. It could be a lot worse than what it is. Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Sagar.